This is Radio ANA, broadcasting on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We are Annalise and Arnie, talking about community and individual responses to harm, transformative justice, accountability, safety, support and healing and prison abolition within and challenging dominator culture. We would like to acknowledge Aboriginal elders past and present and to acknowledge and honour the resistance of First Nations people across these lands. just listened to Heartbreaker by Amer Asu. Hi, today on Radio ANA we'll be interviewing Jill Faulkner about ethics and frameworks in supporting survivors of violence, particularly in supporting women survivors of violence in heteronormative relationships. So let's go to the interview now. Hi Jill, would you like to introduce yourself, your work and what brings you to this work? Hello, my name is Jill Faulkner. I come from Aotearoa. However, I've lived more on the lands of the First Peoples of this country than on my own grandfather's country. I'm currently speaking to you from the Manang lands of the the woman, the Noongar people. But I also want to acknowledge that we're meeting on unceded lands wherever we are situated in Australia. 
I'm part of the queer community, I'm a mother and I'm a grandmother. And I think those locations really shape and inform my work. I think my work has been predominantly around responding to power, you know, whether that, you know, is situated in systems, in structures, um, or and playing out in, in people's interpersonal relationships. So I'd have to say that that's really been at the core of my work. And my work has really been shaped and informed by the many, many individuals, families and communities, you know, that I've worked alongside. Thanks, Jill. What we really wanted to explore today was supporting people who've experienced violence. And so to start, I'm wondering what ethics or um, frameworks have you found important or useful for working alongside and supporting people who've experienced violence? If I was to clearly locate myself, it's as an intersectional feminist. I'm an abolitionist. I don't want to support the carceral system. I believe that it's an institution of power and that it hasn't done much to alleviate the suffering of those who've experienced harm or, in fact, those who are harming. Um, So I think as an intersectional feminist, I'm really interested in the way that power is located in structures and in dominant discourses that shape the lives of women um, who are responding to violence. I think that the colonial project, white body supremacy, has a history of constructing very gendered, binarised notions. Um, And as the service system, we've been co-opted into replicating a binarised language which conceals power, uh, which holds power, which is exclusionary, and also has a whole lot of assumptions about how women who've been responding to violence should respond, should look like, should be acting, um, and what they should be doing. I'm also very interested in the way that women of colour, uh, First Nations women, have experienced violence in ways where the systemic and the racist violence is ignored, erased and invisibilised, but what that means for their lives and for the ways that we respond to them. And so in many ways, I think wherever women are located and coming into contact with the system, whether it be in the mental health system, the drug and alcohol system, the family and domestic violence system, women are being subjected to binarised notions where they may be others, they may be included and excluded, but there'll be a range of assumptions about how they need to interact with the system and how they need to be responding. I believe in anti-oppressive practice. I think that the trauma discourse has taken over the service system. Um, I think that Whilst I don't deny that experiences of harm are located in people's bodies and in people's minds, I think that when we use a a single storyline of trauma, it's invisibilizing that people are actually responding to violence, to abuse, to subjugation and oppression. Um, And so that's really what I'm most interested in. I'm shaped by narrative practices, I think post-structuralist practices that locate the personal within a social and political context are important. When I'm working with women who've been responding to violence, helping to find ways to make known the way that power is operating in their life, in their relationships, but also in systems and structures and dominant discourses of sexism, patriarchy, white body supremacy, and other gendered notions, you know, that are binarized and have preferences for how we should be operating in our lives. And thinking about having these frameworks and ethics that inform 
who you are and your practice. In being able to locate yourself in this way, why is that useful? I think it's useful because what I notice about the system is that if we look at the history of responding to women or supporting women who've been responding to violence, it really was generated out of feminists that were trying to support other women to be able to live lives of safety. And I think over the last 40 or 50 years, the system has taken up that role and it's adopted a very professional attitude and response. And professionalism as a discourse, you know, holds power and power over women. I don't think that I want to be involved in relationships that replicate that power. But I also know that uh, no one approaches free from harm. And so as someone who believes that the, the transformation, the support comes in relationships, I also have to have a set of ethics that hold me to account and that help support other people to hold me to account around the way that I'm responding to a woman who's been experiencing violence. And so, you know, violence is disruptive. It's often intended to uh, disintegrate women. And so I want to be engaged in ethics that are contesting the intentions of violence. So I want to be structuring safety, safety across my relationships with women. And I want to be held accountable for how that safety is structured, particularly when we hit contexts where mandatory organisations get involved and women are often subjected to further blaming uh, discourses and harm. I also understand the injustice of the system. The system is inequitable in the way that we respond to people, in the way that people have access to resources and advantages. And so I want to be challenging that and I want to be noticing that and I want to be noticing that very definitely because that speaks to women's struggles. So I want to notice where they're challenged around particular social locations, whether it's around cultural race, whether it's around ableism, so that I'm not oblivious to the steps they're taking all of the time to keep themselves and their children safe. I want to be addressing power as it exists in all of our relationships. I want to also be making the links between systemic and structural power and women's individual experiences. I think if we don't do that, then we're working with women in a way that's very individualised. And I think violence is a social project. So I want to constantly be examining how I'm taking up power, but how power is also being exercised in women's lives. And I want a practice of accountability. I want to know where my privilege is sitting. I want to be held accountable for my privilege when I'm stepping outside of that. But also, you know, I need accountability mechanisms in my practice because I will stray. I don't want to do that in a way that unwittingly causes harm. So I think the way that we establish accountability structures and ethics of accountability, that can be spoken to in our practice is incredibly important. So that's why it's important to me because I think that women who are responding to violence, they're subjugated um, and I think and they're subject to hierarchical relationships constantly and I think sadly I see that often the service system and the workers unwittingly step into those roles and I don't want to be doing that. I think it's harmful when we replicate those structures. In your experiences, when you have managed to build relationships or connections along those ethics that you've shared, what has that made possible in supporting people? 
Now, if we think about the tactics or the intentions of violence, it's around disconnecting, disconnecting people from themselves, from their communities and families. You know, without connection and a sense of respect and working together to structure enough safety and relationships, really, you know, like we're just in a very kind of artificial, ingenuous space. Um, so I think building relationships with women engaging with the ways that they make meaning is critical and I think it makes possible a space for women to explore what's going on for them but also to explore where their agency is and what it is that they want to do and explore how women have been resisting the violence how women have been keeping their children safe and I think that you know what I understand is that women are always seeking safety and it makes sense in the context in which it develops so I think to be able to be witnessed, all of you and all of your acts of resistance, of safety seeking, makes possible, you know, a space where women can determine the journey they want, whether it's a migration journey from the violence, whether it's a way of staying safe in the violence. It makes it possible for women to reclaim, you know, those spaces that are most significant and important to them. And I think that uh, when we work in a system that, privileges leaving as the only outcome for women who are responding to violence, we also then enact another form of power or control over women. So I think what it makes possible is for women to understand that this is a social issue, that there are other women also experiencing this, that the way that it's supported is held in ideas that society supports, like patriarchy, for example, so when those things are made possible, I think it makes it possible for women to reclaim their preferred ways of being in the world, their preferred identities. And whatever their transformation journey looks like, it gives them the opportunity to step alongside them in that, not to dictate or to lead that. And I think the other thing about that is that power is constantly replicated in the service system particularly if, if women end up in the criminal legal system or having a relationship with mandatory services like child protection. And I'm not neutral around harm and I'm not neutral around violence. So I also think there are times when it's important to lean into women, to be able to speak back into the system about the harms that are being replicated um, in the service of that woman, not over top of that woman. So I think, you know, when we start to speak into relationships, then it becomes familiar with women to start to notice how power has been utilised. Hey, yo, it's Tony. I can't get to the phone right now, but uh, just leave the name and number and I'll call you back. Hey, it's me. We got some stuff to talk about. You've had me feeling a certain type of way recently and we need to talk. Girls so fly in the sky, no other bird can deny She gon' ride high with a sucky, a lyrical delight Me a fat fiend, sensual inside Be her in the trees all night Terror from the screams of your pipes Fantasy is drinking tonight Quick slice, take her back, quite nice My guy, real fine, got my juice so right I said, hey, how you going, mister? I really wanna see how you treat a sister Cause I'm pretty seeker, nice to meet you And the way you talk to me has piqued my interest uh, Creeper deeper, make me leaker I pretty seeker, nice to meet you Cause the destruction, fighting feet Die. She said, I'ma get you high if you wanna ride. 
Sorry that I lied, I don't wanna fight, but I'm done and it's alright, now to take flight. And we just listened to Miss Blanks with a song called Fly High. Jill, what advice would you give to be able to really meet someone where they're at? I think that often support people make assumptions about what's best for someone. How do we really learn to sit alongside someone without making assumptions about what's best for them? Yeah, I think that um, part of it is deconstructing, you know, what the the frameworks that the system are are utilising and privileging and preferencing. It wasn't so long ago that a woman's service wouldn't support a woman if she chose to stay in the relationship. You know, like, so I think we have to step back and have a look at what are the frameworks, what are the assumptions and values that we're holding either implicitly or explicitly, and how is that informing our work? I think we also, you know, like need to have a look at the notion of risk. You know, like people are risk aversive. Of course, we don't want there to be further harm, but women have also been keeping themselves safe. So risk sits alongside, you know, many strategies that women have for seeking safety. You know, and I was thinking of a woman that I was speaking with not so long ago in an Aboriginal community. And when we were speaking about this, she drew out all of the streets in the community and then she drew the houses and she described how on particular days, which houses she stays in, who's in those houses, how those people keep her safe. We need to be much more robust in understanding women's expert knowledge around what it is that is possible. And I think what we've done is we've said that the only response to violence is the system, so call the police. And I'm not sure, but after 40 or 50 years of seeing the police trained, I'm still seeing increasing numbers of women who are misidentified. I'm still seeing and hearing from women inhumane responses to the violence they're experiencing and so I think you know what we've done is we've said as the service system 
where the response for mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues, and for you know family, family and domestic violence. However, you know the system is not free from racism, from classism, from sexism. You know heteronormative preferences. So I think often we make women less safe by dragging women into the structures of the system. So I think that we should be much more interested in looking at how we also work with women in communities, you know, because often that's where women's connection and belonging is. Where women's friends, families and community are, they're the people who are most invested in supporting women to be safe, women and children to be safe. If we've deconstructed and disempowered community solutions over multiple years, communities feel uh, that it's an impossible task. However, I see safe houses, you know, informal safe houses in communities. I see when women gather what becomes possible. I've seen safe houses become more than safe houses, but centres for women to gather. And in the gathering, sometimes women are there because they're seeking safety and sometimes women are there because they're having meetings about what needs to happen to support their children and other things. I think, you know, like we've become very discreet around how we imagine, you know, what things safety might look like. So I would ask the workers, first of all, to understand their own frameworks of practice. What is absent but implicit in terms of unintended consequences around the actions that we take and how we can kind of continue to stand alongside women in the discomfort, understanding whose discomfort it is and what other structures or places of support there might be that the woman is, is, have, has more preference for. You know, when you're talking about close people and supporters in community often being best placed to support safety for women in the ways that they're choosing it or creating it, I was wondering if you could offer any advice for friends or family members, ways that they can support survivors and can also challenge some of that thinking um, in themselves. I think, you you know, when we see workers who are working at their best with women, Often they're people who know how to listen, who know how to witness women's stories. And I think with the best of intentions, many people step into a solution-focused position. They give lots of advice. You know, like probably the primary thing is to listen and to witness all that is being said and unsaid, you know, in accompanying a woman in her journey. And also to trust that that woman will have some answers and might just need more supports in order to shoulder her up in terms of stepping towards those answers. I think also, you know, like it's helpful to understand how violence is landing in the bodies and the minds, the emotions of women, so that, you know, that we can be there in a nurturing way as part of the community. Sometimes women just need to be wrapped up and given a bed you know, with a cup of tea where she feels safe enough to think through the next steps. So I think, you know, like what we tend to do is we're a world of solutions. And I think also, you know, like we're in a world of binarized thinking, you know, you're either safe or you're not safe. You're either at risk or you're not at risk. Um, You know, you're a perpetrator or a victim, you know, like that thinking brings a fixity and a construction of people as an identity construction, when actually we're talking about acts, 
to be more fluid in the way that we're prepared to understand and to understand the movement that women might have, you know, as they make sense of their world and how they might want to step forward or away from the world that they're in. You know, and people will often say, well, gosh, you know, we put everything in place and she went back to him or whatever the comment is. But we're talking about migration journeys. And if we were to think about think about our lives and to name our lives as chapters in a book and then go back to two chapters, maybe chapter four and five, it's what was happening between four and five. That's actually the process and the journey. But what we do in the service system is we move from four to five and there's not any movement around the journey. But I think communities might be better place to kind of support, you know, the ambivalence that happens, the, the desire for safety, the safety for the children and the great love that still sits. So we think if there's violence, you can't love someone, you need to leave someone. But there are multiple things sitting in this space. The people who are close to these women, you know, in community will be able to hear all of those things without feeling intimidated, but knowing the wonder of all that we bring, you know, to our lives. So I think, you know, connection, belonging, listening, listening deeply, and then asking women what would they not? What would be the most helpful thing for today? And tomorrow, what might that look like? So not stepping in front of, but staying alongside a woman. And I'm hearing there, Jill, there's something there about building trust to be able to connect with someone and to relate to someone in that way. I think you're right, Annelise. And I think that, you know, if I had a dollar for every worker who told me I, I know how to build trust, you know, if I asked around, what are the practices of building trust? You know, well, it's, I just tell them they can trust me. Well, I'm not sure how that engenders trust. Because like structuring safety, building trust, these are relational, these are collaborative relational processes. And so if we're applying trust, that's just another replication of power. So it's about how we engage relationally. And how we take the time for relationships and how we create the space for those relationships. And, you know, relationships can bring ambiguity. Um, they can bring ambivalence. They can bring all of those things. And if we're genuinely able to do that, we'll be able together to work with the ambiguity, the ambivalence, you know, the anger when it comes up, the sadness. When we hide behind a professional discourse, I don't think that practices of building trust collaboratively are ever discussed. I don't think structuring safety is discussed. I don't think practices of consent are necessarily discussed. And so mostly what we're doing in the system is replicating a non-consensual experience for people. So, you know, I think these are all the practices of relationship which is central to any of the work that we might be doing because the harm occurs in relationships. So whatever we do that might hopefully be reparative, we want to see it occurring in relationships of difference. But that also involves the other person. It's not something we do to people. We're about to listen to Holy Water by June Jones. Thank you. 
met you on the shoreline A half-submerged Atlantis A body inside a body A wetness within a wetness I run myself I try my best to be present I try to not disappear I try my best to be present I try my best to be here I try my best to exist What more can I do than talking with Jill Faulkner about ethics and frameworks and supporting survivors of violence and we'll go back to the interview now. Jill, thinking about when we act outside of our ethics, 
what might repair and rebuilding trust look like? Oh, well, we need to name what's happened and we need to go back and do that, you know, and we need to say, you know, like I've been thinking about what happened yesterday, for example. Um, I realised that I, I stepped outside of what we agreed to around consent or whatever it is, structuring safety, and I'm deeply sorry and I need to somehow rectify this or make repair around this. And I'm wondering... What would it take to do that? Do you have any ideas? Or are there some things I could, I could suggest and you could kind of choose whether they make sense to you or not? But I don't think we can ignore when we step outside or out of line of our own ethics because also whatever we're doing in that relationship is in fact modelling and inviting relationships of difference. So we want to make sure that we're congruent with the things that we say. I think it's critical to name it and then to make repair for that in the way then that perhaps women could expect the same thing to happen for the harms that they've experienced or even the harms that they may have enacted at times. I think whatever's happening in that relationship is the work. In all of these things, um, what are some of the things that support people do or that they think that does get in the way of supporting survivors of violence? I think that often support people have an idea around what needs to happen. I think that, you know, we've been trained to be very aversive around risk and so people are looking at risk all of the time, not always balancing that up with safety and looking for how safety has been sought. Um, and I think that, you know, like the system, you know, like the system is invested in women leaving violent relationships. I don't really know how we can do this work with women individually without working with communities because ultimately safety, safety is held in communities. So if we're just working with individual women without working with their families and communities, Often we're just adjusting women to the inhumanity of their world. I think also the system is set up, you know, on a very individualised, you know, we work with the individual. And I know that we now work with men and we can work with children. But when neighbourhoods are safe, you know, women are safer. If something goes wrong, you know, and a woman needs to go to her neighbour because something's gone wrong and the neighbour's responsive and receptive, that's greater level of safety than putting a woman in a safe house and then trying to get her some kind of accommodation. It might be in a manky hotel. Um, there may be no transition houses. In the meantime, the kids are bouncing alongside that as well. You know, like there's not much stability that the system can offer. And also the system doesn't have enough housing, et cetera. But more recently when I was with a group of women who were being released from prison, you know, and I was saying, what is it that makes a difference? Because many of the women had been released several times. They said the difference was when they felt like they belonged somewhere, where they had safe housing, but they belonged. And initially, when we were talking, they talked about, oh, well, we just need to have a good support worker. Like, they'd been inculcated into the system. But when we said, well, what if we could reimagine the world and what it might look, what your world might look like? Women want to live in communities of people that care. 
They want to belong to that and they want to contribute to that. You know, that's what's generative and feeling like you're an active participant in your life and the lives of others. So I think, you know, the way the system set up community practice was replaced, you know, years ago with health promoting practice with all sorts of, you know, outcome and process indicators. You know, and that's done to people, people who are suffering some kind of othering in the community, but actually just working alongside communities, you know, like and seeing what what exists in communities, what's possible in communities, that doesn't happen if you're a support worker. So I think making those links is incredibly important. The other thing is also understanding the links between the structural and systemic violence and what's happening in women's lives. Because if that's not occurring either, then it's a very individual, often pathology, that women are being landed with as a response to the violence they've been experiencing. Yeah, it really makes me think about how much we dehumanise people who've experienced violence, see them less than human, and also devalue them and their capacities. Absolutely, and least and less deserving. So their choices, you know, like they might be offered something and they say, no, I don't think I want that house. So, well, that's it, you know, one strike and you're gone. So it's like because you've been responding to violence, you now are less deserving of having a choice about your life. Thinking about this, I'm sure that all of us have supported people who've experienced violence that are messy, that are um, sometimes hard to work alongside, uh, where there's lots of challenges. And, yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how we can get better at supporting people um, in ways that aren't linear and in ways where we're able to understand and uh, sit with their complexities. You know, I, I do think it's interesting, you know, because violence and abuse, you know, does land traumatically with people. It is dysregulating and it does mean that that women who are responding and kids responding to violence, you know, like they're hypervigilant. You know, this lands on top of often multiple experiences that, you know, have really often taken away their their capacity to believe in themselves or to understand or even see themselves, you know. And so it seems that the the service system is, they've obviously got a mental health issue. They've got, you know, borderline personality disorder. And coincidentally, I've never met a woman who's been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder who hasn't been subjected to intense abuse often as a child. You know, that's what we would see. And so then the mental health system will apply everything that they believe you know, needs to occur in that setting. But actually, how could we not understand the very experiences of these women and that it will be messy and it will be complex and some days, you know, she may be very clear about how what she needs to do and other days she may feel she has nothing in her left to make any sense of any part of the world. It's not our job to expect a linear progression, you know, moving from A to B people's lives are not like that we want to engage in the journey with people and we want to meet them wherever they are at any particular point to do that we have to drop our preconceptions around what will be acceptable behavior what's the tone 
you know, like, don't talk to me like that. You know, when the woman's really consumed with hurt and rage, like, if it can't be said in what's meant to be a safe space, where is it said? She says it on the street, she'll be arrested and then she'll be criminalised. You know, it's like, it's like it reminds me of when, you know, we have young people and there's no place they can become an adult. You know, they're not allowed to act out in public spaces. They're not allowed to act out in private spaces. So it's like, how do they transition into adulthood? I don't know. And it's the same here. You know, how do, how do they make sense? And we all know about gaslighting. And we know how, you know, those tactics that are designed to have people second-guessing themselves. So it's our job to just be there. And I also understand this demand. So we're very quick, you know, to exit people. But exit them, you know, if we must, into, you know, a network of support, a place where the multiple aspects of their life can be held where they can scream and they can talk out these things, where sometimes their well-being really disappears and they can be supported to find some kind of equilibrium again. But I think we're too quick. I think we come in with a lot of judgments around how women have to act and how they have to be. But I don't know about you, but if I reflect on my own life, there are times when my world has really crashed and it wasn't a straightforward process to claw my way back. I don't think it's straightforward for these women. You know, I think a little more humanity, but also practicing with dignity. You know, what are the practices of dignifying someone as opposed to dehumanizing? Jill, thinking about the friendship and subcultural groups that Arnie and I are in, I think that. People are sometimes pretty quick to dismiss or to position some people who have experienced harm as crazy. And I would say that it's then this idea that they should be supported by a mental health professional. So that pathologizing that you talked about. Um, and whilst, of course, people should, you know, receive the support that they want to receive, I wonder whether there are any skills that people in communities and friendship groups can actually learn. Uh, you talked about deep listening before. Is there anything else that uh, we could just actually practice and get better at so that we're more able to support each other? I think people have to feel like they can engage in conversations. And sometimes there's a fragility, you know, so how do we support the you know like the the multifaceted worlds you know of people which are emotional worlds as well and I think often it's people's emotional world that is so distressing and overwhelming you know so what are the practices that build you know some kind of robustness around being able to engage in our emotional world rather than go around it over top of it because often it's that's where the the dissonance often happens in relationships as in, you know, like you did something that hurt me and, you know, you can't understand my hurt. So we can't engage with the hurt. And then it's so hurtful that I'll just, you know, like get on and I'll, you know, start running a marathon or something so that I don't have to just sit with it. So I think there are practices of creating awareness around what's happening, you know, in our own emotional worlds, you know, what's going on. And how do we sit with discomfort? Because what I see, and I see it in the system as well, is 
when something's uncomfortable, when something's messy or complicated, we move to simplify it or we move to erase it. So, you know, like for me, it's how do we learn to sit with discomfort, you know, before we kind of move towards, you know, having a conversation? How do we kind of notice what it's doing for us, you know, but in a way that we can also then see the other? Because what we often do is we can't see the other. The other is invisibilized because our own pain becomes so overwhelming. I think there are some practices around our emotional world, around our noticing of ourselves, around how we engage in that relationally with others, but how we do that with care. For many of us, you know, compassion's kind of drifted away. And that happens because, you know, we've got such hierarchical structures that other someone, which is for our comfort, if queer folk are uncomfortable to cisgendered heteronormative folk, you know, by othering them, they don't have to deal with it really. You know, so I think it's there's been an abdication of responsibility. So how do we kind of move towards taking responsibility, move with more compassion, you know, build our own robustness around noticing what's going on in ways that we're not needing others, you know, to make us comfortable, that we can actually deal with that in order to engage in the hard conversations. We're about to listen to I Feel Better But I Don't Feel Good by Alice Skye. Seem like much, but I'm hurting 
Jill, thinking about in these communities that we're in, a lot of people do try and not use the paths of the criminal legal system, but in some situations people have called police. In situations like this, how might we still work with the person that has experienced the violence and align ourselves to our ethics? Well, I think we have to address it and it makes me think of a woman I worked with who had five children and was responding to violence, extreme violence, but also at times was also harming the children. And so we worked together for a long time, but we had to have conversations. I would say to her, at times I can see that things are getting in the way of you caring for your kids in the way that I know that you want to care for them. And if that time occurs again, I might have to call child protection, for example. And so I need to know from you that it's going to be okay to hold the safety of your kids tenderly and close to me when I can see that you might be slipping away from that. So that was like something that happened. And then the thing happened. And so the kids, you know, had to be removed, but thankfully were able to put them with their nana after a while. But And mum was really upset and mum took off. Um, and then maybe four or five days later, mum rang up and said, I need to come back and I need to feel okay. I need that from you. You know, so she was very clear. And so I said, yes, absolutely. You know, I'm here. Do you want me to meet you? Do you want me to meet you? And we come back together. So I think we just continue to join. And I can say, you know, I'm sorry I had to call child protection. That was one of those moments. And I know you love your kids and you wouldn't have wanted those kids to be harmed because I know how dear they are to you. So I think it's not like, it's not that either or again. It's like, how do we hold and, you know, and you're not managing and you love the kids and you want them cared for, you know, like how do we hold these multiple threads I didn't want to call child protection. If I could have done anything else, I would have preferred to. But, you know, like sometimes that's the last resort we have. But I still need to be able to work with her. You know, I still need her to know and I deeply care about her as well. And what does she need now? And then I could say, you know, so the kids are with Nana. What do you and I need to focus on for your, for your life to be much better today? What do we need to do today so that she then gets centred so that the work for her kids comes through caring for her? So I think it's like holding multiple threads, but also acknowledging when we get, you know, that we've had to do, that we've done this. It was a decision we made and we're sorry for the pain and the suffering it's caused and how do we kind of find our way back? And I'm seeing in that, Jill, what you're able to do is see her ethics and her values. Absolutely, because that's our work, right? When we're setting up relationships, we want to know what it is she gives value to, what she holds dear, what she cherishes. Because generally, if she's been responding to violence, we know that some of those things have been torn from her. You know, so we want to be working towards resurrecting a connection to those things so we don't want to lose sight of that and I think that's part of the importance of those 
you know, like earlier conversations so that she gets a sense of being dignified, you know, of being honoured around that which she gives value to. In all of these things that we've been talking about, I wonder for you, Jill, what keeps you going in the work? I can never be neutral around injustice and harm and, you know, the exclusionary practices of power, you know, are abhorrent to me. So I think it's like wanting to address those in the best way possible. I think the health of our communities, you know, is premised on the health of those that are struggling the most. I don't like the inequities that are, that are occurring and that continue to occur and I don't want to be part of harming others. Um, and I think once you see, you know, as you both also, once we see injustice, there's no way not to see it. You know, it's there and being a bystander around that I think would be really intolerable for me. And is there any final thoughts that you have um, to share? I think one of the things that we haven't done in the service system, when we develop practice frameworks, I think we could think about what's the practice of doing dignity. How do we dignify the other? And I think if we had that in our heads in terms of the practice framework, it might be generative of kind of creating a shift in the way that workers operate or respond to women who've been experiencing violence. Thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts, wisdom, suggestions and advice. Thank you both. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will finish the show with Kabaddi by Wildflower.
Kunre, Kunmayor Kaye. Be back, Kang Naya, Ward, Dalpuni. My best man, Kunre, we may be good men. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.